0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. I love you. It's great to see your faces. We're going to, in just a minute, study the Word of God together. But uh, just a few remarks. I was here about a week and a half ago on a Wednesday night. I was invited to come, and we shared communion and had such a wonderful, beautiful time, and I was able to express some remarks that I'd just like to briefly share with you. The past couple months have been very confusing for all of you, all of us. And for my part in this, my leadership style, for the way it has confused or pained anyone at all. I have been brokenhearted over the situation, and I ask for your forgiveness. Um, Nothing was ever done intentionally to hurt anyone, but um, my my heart has just been broken over what has happened. Our prayers are continually with you. Uh, They will be. Uh, Some people have asked, well, Skip, you were here at first when this happened, and then you just sort of dropped off the map. Uh, Why is that? Why why are you here all of a sudden uh, last Wednesday and then today? Well, it's because I was invited. And um, I feel very strongly that you should never come unless you're invited. Uh, I resigned from the board of directors because I wanted to make a statement that I trust the local leadership. I trust the board of directors. Fine group of men. Trust the pastoral staff. You've got an excellent staff here and pastoral staff at this church. And so I wanted them to give them the opportunity to go through the process and the processes that needed to be done and enable them to do what they're doing. And then they invited me back on that Wednesday night, invited me this morning. I'm glad to be here. But I also want to say... Uh, this has never been Skip's church. It's never been my church. It's always been, and will continue to be, God's church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And besides that, the church is a lot more than one person's activities. You've always been here. You've volunteered. You've done the work of the ministry. The church is God's people. And at the core and the center of this pulpit ministry for years has been the teaching of the Word of God, and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to take us back to the very core of what it's all about, the gospel, Jesus Christ. And would you turn with me to John chapter 3, to a familiar section and a familiar verse. John chapter 3. Would you bow your hearts in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, here we are today, your people. We have carved out of our week this time on this, the Lord's Day, inviting you to not just be a part of our lives, but to be at the very center of our lives. To bring everything back to the awareness that it's not about us, it is about you. And we want to respond, we have already in worship. We will listen to your word, we will respond as your spirit speaks to hearts. And we're so grateful for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Thank you Lord for this flock Thank you for the way you have worked and continue to work and will work in the future with these, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, some things that are very obvious to us in life are not obvious to everyone. They need a bit of explanation. Here's an example. Some years ago, scientists at NASA developed a special gun that shot out dead chickens. They did it to test the windshields of commercial airliners, military aircraft, and the space shuttle, all traveling at maximum velocity. Why? They wanted to test the strength of the windshield with airborne fowl as they would take off through the atmosphere if any birds would be in the way. They wanted to test the strength of the windshields. Well... A few scientists in Britain heard about this gun. They asked for the specifications and they built their own. However, when they launched their chickens out at the windshields of high-speed trains that they were testing, they were baffled. The chicken went through the shatterproof windshield, through the control console, through the backrest of the pilot, and lodged in the back of the cabin wall. They didn't know what to do, so they sent their findings back to NASA Corporation. This is what we've done. Help us. Give us suggestions. The scientists at NASA read what their experiment entailed and wrote back a simple suggestion. Faw out the chicken. (laughs) Should have been obvious. But it needed a bit of explanation. Forgive the crude illustration, but Christianity can sometimes be like that chicken. What seems obvious to some is not so obvious to others. In fact, onlookers, unbelievers, wonder, why do these people get up early on Sunday morning, a day when they could hang out and do anything, and come to church? Why do some people choose Saturday night? Or, or come back on Wednesday night. And when they get together, they're so excited about this God stuff. It's so obvious to us, it needs some explanation to them. This morning, we're going to look at the most obvious and most awesome truth. You already know it. It's in John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, I almost said, don't turn in your Bibles to John 3, because you already know the verse. But it's, it's bad form to announce from a pulpit, don't open your Bibles. So we want to look at this verse today. And by the way, this verse has been translated into more languages than any single verse of Scripture. There's 31,173 verses in the Bible altogether. 23,000 in the Old Testament, about 8,000 in the New. This is the crown jewel of them all. We've heard it all our lives. And this verse, John three sixteen, centers on God's plan for us based on God's love for us. It's the main thing. It's the top issue in life. It centers on Christ. And you may have heard that old saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is in what Bible version do you read? Do you hold the views of Calvin or Arminius, who cares? The main thing is Christ and Christ alone. And so we look at this verse today. You know it. Let's say it out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Martin Luther called this the Bible in miniature. It encapsulates God's plan for humanity, God's plan for you and for me. It's a familiar verse in a familiar section of Scripture. You know the story. A guy named Nicodemus has a personal interview with Jesus on some evening in Jerusalem. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard of all the miracles Jesus has done He's believing that God is with this one and he wants to know why. So he comes to Jesus, asks a few questions, doesn't get very far. Jesus immediately says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Which Nicodemus doesn't quite understand, asks him a few questions. Jesus then predicts his death and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then he says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's God's plan in a nutshell. Now allow me this morning to work through this single verse with you and look at seven things this verse says about God's plan for the world. First of all, the origination of this plan. Notice how it begins. For God so loved the world. It does not begin by saying, for man was figuring out a way to better himself. It's God who takes the initiative. God never left it up to man to try to discover who God is on his own. God started the process, God revealed Himself, He took the initiative. John put it this way in 1 John 4, 19, We love Him because He first loved us. This then is a pursuing God who's going after mankind. It's always been that way. As soon as Adam sinned in the garden, the first thing God spoke to Adam the first thing was a question. He said, Adam, where are you? We don't read that Adam said, where's God? Adam was running from God. And God was chasing Adam, looking for him. That's why Malcolm Muggeridge used to call God the hound of heaven. He chases us. Now, sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, I'm not sure about God, but I, I am searching for God. To which you may respond, I didn't know he was lost. The opposite is the truth. You're not searching for God. God has been searching you out. God takes the initiative. Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. Paul the Apostle even put it more dramatically. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. But... God, who is rich in mercy, with a great love wherein He loved us. I've always loved that verse of Scripture. Here we are, going our own direction, dead, but God. For God so loved the world. When we came into this earth, this world, we were DOA'd, dead on arrival separated from God, requiring God's initiative, requiring us to be born again. Now, dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't improve their condition. And dead people can't be more dead than other dead people. All right? So you can't say, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not as bad a sinner as that person. We're all dead before God. As we come into this earth. You remember a few years ago that movie Prince's Bride. Some of you remember it. And the hero in the story was Wesley. And Wesley went through a horrible ordeal where his friends saw that he was dead. And they brought him to Miracle Max. And they knocked on Miracle Max's door. And this little guy opened up the crack in the door. And the guy said, sir, you've got to help our friend. (laughs) And Max said, what's wrong? He said, our friend is dead. And Max said, oh, you know so much. Well, I'll have you know, your friend isn't all dead, he's only mostly dead. And everybody knows there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Well, when you and I came into this earth, we were all dead spiritually separated from God, needing to be born again. This is what it means. You can put a person in the best schools, but apart from Christ, you'll only get an educated sinner. You can put a person in the best psychological clinics, but apart from Christ, you only have an adjusted sinner. Our only hope is in a God who would chase after us, pursue us. True story I read a few years back in a newspaper, a kid named William was a teenager. He ran away from home. You know why? He had a girlfriend, and he was sure that his parents were trying to break up the relationship William had with his girlfriend. So he ran away. What William didn't know is when he ran away, the tests from the doctor that he had seen a week before just came back. He had a very aggressive form of cancer. Everybody was looking for William to save his life. Now, here's William running away from home lest he lose his love. And here's people chasing after William lest he lose his life. Perhaps some of you God is chasing this morning looking for you, not to ruin you, but to save you. So, the origination of the plan for God. Look at the text again. Notice the motivation of this plan. For God so loved. For God so loved. It doesn't say, For God was so angry at the world that He sent His Son to punch Him out. Nor does it say, For God was so bored with generation after generation that He just stopped caring for people anymore. Oh no. The very essence of God... John tells us later, for God is love. That's his motivation. It's the essence of his nature. Now that's so simple to say. It's so hard to grasp a hold of that truth. That's why Dr. Billy Graham in almost every crusade historically says over and over again in every message, in every arena, God loves you. He always hammers that home because he knows It's so simple to say, it's hard to grasp. Dwight L. Moody, preacher at Moody Bible Church in Chicago years ago, late 1800s, early 1900s, made a study of the love of God in the scripture. He took a concordance and he found every reference to the love of God and he wrote it down longhand on a sheet of paper. And after his study, he concluded, there is no greater subject that should affect the hearts of human beings than the love of God. Even the greatest theologians, it baffles them. Karl Barth, a noted theologian of yesteryear, was speaking on the East Coast at an Ivy League school. And in his classroom were not only theological students, but theologians, um, dignitaries. And at the question and answer session, they said, Dr. Bart, what's the greatest thought you've ever had that's crossed your thought processes? And he smiled. And he said, this is it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the motivation of God's plan, for God so loved. In fact, it's the love of God that's so impacted the author of this book, John, that when he writes 1 John chapter 3, this is what he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Behold could be translated, Check it out. Look at this. What foreign love is this that would make the most wretched of sinners into his own children? You know, God's love is so different than human love. Here's why. Human love is object-oriented. Divine love is subject-oriented. Let me explain. Humans look at an object or a person and say, I like or I dislike that or this person. Our love is based upon the object that we're called upon to love. So it discriminates. Not God's love. His love is indiscriminate. His love is subject-oriented. It's not based on your character, your nature, but God's character, God's nature. God is love. And so there's a consistency here. God's love is based on His own character, which means you can never deserve His love. And you never have to worry, does God love me less today than He did yesterday? I read only one chapter today, and I read ten chapters yesterday. So... God's love is so much greater than human love. What did Paul say? For God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. A young woman went to a psychiatrist. She had three kids. The doctor asked her a simple question. Which of your kids do you love most? She was shocked. I love them all the same, she said. He said, come on, it's a psychological impossibility to regard three human beings as exactly the same in your output of love. When she heard that, she broke down and cried. She says, all right, you're right, I admit it. When one is sick, I love that one the most. When one is in pain, I love that one the most. When one is bad, I love that one the most. But besides those three exceptions, I love them all the same. You might be hurting today, in pain today, running today, bad today. God has a special motivation of love toward you this morning. Go on in that verse with me. You'll notice not only the origination of this plan and the motivation of this plan, but notice next, third, the population for this plan. It says, for God so loved the world. Not for God so loved the Americans. Not for God so loved the elect only. Not God loves white, middle class, whatever. Or a special group of people. God loves the world. This is love at its widest embrace. When Jesus spoke these words, he was talking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, an elder of the Jews. And I'm sure that Nicodemus was a bit shocked when he heard those words, for God so loved the world. See, Nicodemus grew up thinking God's love was for good, law-abiding Jewish people, the chosen, the elect, and that's us. And now Jesus is saying, oh no, it's much broader, it's much wider, it's more encompassing. God loves the world. What did Jesus tell us? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know why? Because the cure for the disease is the same universally. If a person has Hansen's disease, used to be known as leprosy. If they're in South America... Thailand, Africa, doesn't matter. The cure is the same worldwide. Same with us. All of us were born S-I-N positive. The cure for the disease is the same. Whether you're in Saudi Arabia, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Europe, Central America, South America, Africa. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses a person from all sin. Now, what if this verse said, For God so loved all the good people of the world. Well, we'd understand that. But then that would eliminate us, wouldn't it? What I mean is that some days we're in good behavior, other days we're not. It's up and down. But it doesn't say God just loved the good people of the world. Or, or what if God loved like we do? Sometimes we have great emotional outpouring and affection towards someone. The next day, we might just say, I'm having a bad day. I, 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 be, go away. What if God woke up one day and said, I'm having a bad halo day. I just, I'm just sort of sick and tired of all this rebellion on the earth. I've been patient long enough. But again, God loved the world. You cannot stop God from loving you. But you can come to a place where you don't experience God's love anymore. There's a reason Jude wrote in his little epistle, always keep yourselves in the love of God. It's like the sun. You can't keep the sun from shining. It shines every day, but you might not experience it. You could walk out in the middle of the sun and put up an umbrella and that would keep the rays from off your body. You could walk around with an umbrella, spiritually, of sin or of doubt, that though God loves you, you're not experiencing it at that moment. But His love is consistent. Let's go to the next part of verse 16. We have now the demonstration of God's plan. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God demonstrates His love by giving. True love can never be passive. It's never silent. If a person loves another person, there will be an action, an activity, a showing up, a giving. For God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Anyone here who's a counselor, has done any type of ministry, knows that marriages, after a period of time, can deteriorate from a bright vibrant love relationship into a formal, almost dead, legal understanding. Here's why. Somewhere along the line, the couple stopped giving. Giving time to one another. Giving the energy that they once gave in the relationship. Giving the care to that relationship. True love demonstrates... Gives, pours out. So, for God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? His best. The ultimate sacrifice. His only begotten son. There was an astronaut who went to the moon. When he got back, he was being interviewed. The interviewer asked him a very interesting question. He said, okay, when you were standing on the moon next to your spacecraft and you were looking at the earth... From the moon? What were you thinking? The astronaut said, well, it's going to sound funny, but I couldn't help but thinking that the spacecraft that I was riding in was built by the lowest bidder. (laughs) Frightening thought. Somebody bidded out this thing and NASA sent it out to the lowest bidder. But when God enacted his plan to save planet Earth, he didn't give it out to the lowest bidder. He paid the highest price, his only son. You may have heard of the legend, and it's only a legend, of a man who was walking down a street. He fell off the road into a bunch of quicksand and he's going down fast. And The first person to walk by was Confucius, who noticed the man was sinking and this wise Man looked and said, It is evident that men should stay out of these places. That's all he could say. Buddha walked by and saw the man in his plight and said, Let this man's plight be a lesson to all of us. Muhammad walked by and said, Alas, it is the will of God. But Jesus walked by and said, Give me your hand, I'll save you. That's God's plan. That's God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his ultimate, his only begotten son. That's the demonstration of the plan. Fifth, same verse. Notice the invitation of God's plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever, who is salvation offered to? Whoever. Whomever. God isn't picky. He'll take anybody. Jesus had a conversation with a woman of Samaria at the well. And as they were going back and forth, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. There it is again, whoever. The Bible closes with that same invitation. Revelation 21, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty. Notice, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Whoever, whomever. In fact, one of the things I've always loved about God, especially God in Christ, the Incarnation, is that He often picked people no one else wanted to hang with. Mary Magdalene, come on in. Thief on the cross, I'll save you. Thomas, be a part of my team. It's so wonderful. On earth, there are exclusive places that admit certain people but keep others out. Clubs. Could be a country club, could be an academic society. You can come in, but you have to be a certain person with certain qualifications before you're admitted. Do you know that it's easier to get into heaven than it is to a Christian university? Not everybody can get into a Christian university. What are your grades? What is your background? What are your ideas? But whoever comes God's way, God will take anyone. Perhaps the biggest surprise in heaven will be those who made it there and those who did not. Notice also the condition of God's plan. Oh, yes, there is a condition. It's not that everybody just dies and automatically is given the kingdom of God. But notice carefully that it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes, that's the prerequisite, that is the requirement, that's the precondition. You have to believe. Now a person might say, well, I believe, I acknowledge that there is a God who exists, there is a Christ, and you know what James would say to that. Even the demons believe and tremble. So it has to mean more than just, oh yeah, in my mind, I intellectually assent, there is a God, there is a Christ, he has a plan. The word believe, pistuo, could be translated, whoever trusts in, relies on, adheres to, and commits his life fully to will never perish, but have everlasting life. you probably had people say to you, well, I'm glad you're a Christian. You have a crutch. Something to lean on when life is bad. To which you might want to reply, oh no, Jesus is not my crutch. He's my stretcher. I have to lay all the way on him. I can't just lean on him a couple times a week. He has all of my faith. That's the idea of biblical trust. Biblical faith. Whoever believes in him. Think of it this way. It's one thing to acknowledge the greatness of a parachute. It's another thing to jump out of the plane. You could say, yes, I, I acknowledge this parachute is good. I believe in parachutes. Parachutes exist. And I believe that they do a lot of good for people. It's another thing to strap one of those babies on your back and jump through that hole in the midair and pull the cord. You may have heard of the great Blondin years ago who used to stretch tightropes across great chasms, buildings, canyons, and he would walk the tightrope, gather a crowd. On one occasion, it is said that the great Blondin stretched his cable across the Niagara Falls from the American side to the Canadian side. Went back and forth. The people cheered. Put a blindfold on. The people cheered louder. Rode back and forth on a unicycle. They cheered even louder. Next, he went with a wheelbarrow. Empty. They cheered. Filled it up with bricks. They cheered louder. And then he said, How many of you believe that I could go back and forth with a wheelbarrow, blindfolded with a person inside of the wheelbarrow? And they said, You can do it. We believe. We believe. And then he said, Who will volunteer? (laughs) Not a single person stepped forward to volunteer. (laughs) Oh, we believe, we believe, but will you cast yourself completely upon Him? Yes, Jesus can change people, but will you get inside that wheelbarrow? Seventh and finally, look back at verse 16. We have the ramification of God's plan. Here's the result. Here's the consequence. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's because of this promise and others like it that the South African converts have called the Bible the book of beautiful words. The beautiful promise of salvation that anyone who comes will receive God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's love lavishly. Book of beautiful words. Whoever believes will not perish, have everlasting life. Okay, great promise. But there's a flip side. There's something implied by that statement. If you trust, if you commit, you won't perish, you'll have everlasting life. But what if you don't commit? What if you don't trust? It would imply that you will perish, and you won't have everlasting life. And just as the life in God is everlasting, so is the perishing everlasting. So that the ultimate choice a person must make is salvation and redemption and restoration by God, or separation from God the ultimate choice a man was speaking to his friend about Christ and his friend an unbeliever said well I'm not sure I can pay the price to become a Christian and his friend put his hand on his shoulder and said have you ever thought about what it will cost you not to become a Christian shall perish that's the choice this last week I was in North Carolina at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center. And the group was an amazing group of people. They were first responders to disasters around the country. Chaplains, firefighters, nurses, doctors, volunteers, first responders who when Katrina would hit or 9-11 would hit, they would be dispatched. And they all swapped stories, it was a wonderful time. On one of the evenings, the highlight to me was an interview with Sergeant Gregory Hawk from St. Bernard Parish in New Orleans. He was one of the only two policemen in the entire police force of New Orleans that was left out in the storm when Katrina hit, and he survived. And he told this story. It was so moving. His wife was with him, and he was in tears. He was standing in front of the St. Bernard High School before the floodwaters came in and destroyed everything, he knew it was coming. He heard the reports. He was bracing himself. He was scared. And he said he stood out in front of that high school and he prayed to Jesus. He said, I don't know why I did it because I have never prayed in my life before that moment. But I prayed to Jesus. I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And he said, I knew it was real. It worked. Then he went on to tell a story. Floodwaters came in. He showed a few pictures. He went on to save 488 people and keep them alive for a week in the St. Bernard High School gym, and the water was just a few feet from the top of the ceiling. They were there a week before they were finally discovered and brought to safety. And this is what Gregory Hawk said: "I lost my home. It's gone." We lost our business. I lost my friends. They moved. I lost my community. But I found Jesus. I lost everything, but Jesus is the main thing. And there's such a joy and peace in this man's heart. And in the midst of that storm, he found Jesus. Gregory Hawke discovered that even if God shoots his gun of suffering at pain at an individual, he always thaws out the chicken. <laughs> There's always a testing with a great blessing. And this man discovered the main thing is the main thing, and that's Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for just the refreshing words of the gospel. That God came from heaven to redeem people. Because you love us. Because you have a plan for us. And we pray that you would extend your plan further this morning in the lives of others. As our heads are bowed, as we're closed, closing our eyes, if you here this morning would admit, I have not fully committed my life to Christ. I haven't asked Jesus in to be my Savior personally and my Lord. You might be a good person, a religious person. Maybe you were raised in a church. Maybe you have no faith at all. But this morning you admit, I haven't really committed my life to Christ. I've come to church, but I haven't come to Christ yet. Or maybe you made a commitment years ago, but you strayed from it, you wandered from it. Today you want to make a recommitment to lay your whole life on Christ and Him alone. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658.